Hi, everyone. Welcome to Humans of AI. I'm Sheikh, and today we have a very special guest, Albert Ziegler, who's the principal ML engineer at GitHub, who's made some incredible contributions to the world of software development, which you'll learn about in just a bit. Albert, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. The very first question I ask most of my guests, and this might be relevant to you given recent changes, is how would you describe your work to a five-year-old? Yeah, that's a good question. And the last time I was asked that question, I think I messed it up because my daughter, when she was about five, I mean, might have been four. I don't know. Yeah. So um, like a couple of days afterwards, I heard her talking to a friend. So my dad, he repairs computers for a living. And I was like, quite. It's true, of course, that I, I do work with computers, but in particular, I like to help other people work with computers because it's such a fundamental building block for our society. Like if you look at the people you've been to high school with, like depending on geography, maybe half of them will instruct computers daily, maybe a bit fewer, but nevertheless, every single one of them will be at least indirectly very dependent on computer programs for their banking and their TV working. And the good thing about programming, so instructing computers, whether that be like the really big cathedrals that you buy do with software development in large teams with using large resources or smaller one-time apps, or maybe even just a couple of scripts, like everyone uses them and the fundamental building blocks, they're super easy and super fun. It's like snapping two Legos together. It's incredibly satisfying. Mm -hmm. Everyone can do it. It always works. But I mean, while everyone can snap together two Legos and that's easy, like building Elsa's ice castle, that's difficult. And so is programming. So making a big architecture where everything fits together, everything works. It's not the case that some small block that you've misplaced, like trips everything up. That's hard. And that's where my job is to help people build the tools and the setups that they can use to do it better. So like in the Lego metaphor, that would be little, I don't know, even know how it's called, but there's a the little thing that you can use to separate blocks. They always give it to me and I never use it. And of course, Lego has instructions, software development, and you have to make your own instructions. And that's also hard. So that describes the whole company I work at, which is GitHub. But within GitHub, I'm part of GitHub Next, who's like the word speculative R&D department. So the name giving question we ask ourselves is what's next for software development mm -hmm. in two, three, four, five years. And then we try to make this next thing a reality and, and happen a bit faster than that. Over the last, I don't know, two years or three, it's very clear that the most interesting developments in, in software development have to do with AI. So these are things like, how can we like help the Lego builder by giving him a little friendly robot that helps them in their Lego building tasks. And that might be like, like serve them the next block, or it might be, it helps them position the block or whatever. And finding out how we can best help them and how these little robots can actually do something useful and not something that's just a nuisance. That in a nutshell is my job. That's a great answer. I'll have to comment that I wasn't expecting to hear about Elsa's ice castle this morning, but very much spoken like a dad. In five years, I get another chance to explain it to a three-year-old. So maybe then I'll do even better. I have two girls myself. They're six and eight. So I still struggle with them to describe what I do. It's almost harder with my mother though. So that's a different level. It's amazing how quickly kids take to technology and I'm 
so, so excited about the world that we'll have in like 10, 20 years yeah, yeah. when kids are actually have grown up with generative AI. I mean, my daughter, she chatted with like a version of GPT-4 before ChatGPT was announced. And that version was still without any fine-tuning, yeah. well, not with any fine-tuning, but without the RLHF fine-tuning that like hammers into it, you're an assistant. So it was yeah. extremely malleable. That the first thing she did is she called it by a name and she acted as if she knew it. And of course, that would answer that way. So she still calls all chatbots Alexandra because that's stuff. Have you introduced her to any aspects of software development yet? A bit. I've started a coding course with her. It's called CodeMonkey. I mean, that has kids as a target. And then she loves it. It's all like writing small programs in a horrible dialect. But I mean, I, I don't like the language, but it's easy and it's kind of intuitive. And you help the monkey like get bananas and it hmm. uses concepts like a full acceptance and, and, and then more and more complex structures. So she does like that, which is good. Of course, I'm not 100% sure whether when she grows up, the concept of a for loop will be that important still, hmm. but it may well be. And I still think it's the right thing to learn because you have to learn something yeah. and then get familiarity with learning new things. But it doesn't help you if you don't learn the existing state. Sounds like she can have a internship at GitHub fairly soon. So that should be fun. I told us about what you're up to now, but rewinding your story a bit. Tell us more about your career journey as a whole. What were some of the inflection points along the way that led to where you are now? So I did not set out to be an ML engineer like at all. Like AI was always something that fascinated me. Like as a kid, when I watched Star Trek Enterprise, my favorite character was Data at all. But it, it wasn't something that I planned to do in any professional capacity. In fact, I didn't even want to be a programmer. Again, I programmed a lot as a kid. My parents, they wouldn't buy me computer games, but I did have programs. So I played with them. But what I really wanted to be is a mathematician. And mm. I wanted to do pure abstract maths. And I went into pure abstract maths and it took me to, like I specialized in like a very like orchid niche field, which is uh, constructor set theory, has to do with realizing logic infinities. And I loved it for a couple of years. And I went to Leeds because the best people sat in Leeds at the time, at least. Maybe they still did. But then after a while, I was kind of like fed up with doing something that didn't directly impact the world. I thought that, what do I actually want to do? I am quite numerate. As I had a mathematician with a background. And like even before specializing in this set theory stuff, I was always interested in probability theory and so on. So I thought, okay, let's use my math skills to make the world like more efficient and work better. I joined a custom quantitative programming and analysis company called Tesella. I'm, I'm not sure they still exist under that name because mm -hmm. they were taken over by Ultra. And it, at least at first, Ultra kept running them under their own brand name. I'm not sure it's, it's, it's still there. There I was set on many like rather short-term Facebook software projects and data analysis projects. And again, that I do data, data analysis at all, that it was kind of a coincidence. I thought I would be a programmer, right? Um, so I realized at the end of my PhD that all my experience like from playing around was in the like stupid languages. Like, I wanted to learn a serious language, so I did a C++ course. And then at Tesella, before they hired me, I had a 
day-long assessment in C++ programming. So I expected to be a C++ programmer. And I've never written a single line of C++ after that assessment center. Because like in the first week to sell her, I got a call from a person in another office. He was one of their data science leads. The name's Tim Pattenden. And at the time, he was an analytic partner, they called it. Basically someone who slices and dices some customer needs and packages them up into mm-hmm. data analysis projects or software projects. And he asked me, okay, so I see you've got a math background. I need a data analyst. Do you know anything about data analysis? No. Okay, but have you ever run a multidimensional linear regression? No, actually. Okay, but do you know what a PCA is? (laughs) No, I don't. Obviously, it wasn't the right answer because he really needed some resource he could put on that project. So he said, okay, can you learn? Yes. That's like learning new things. That's something I love. So I thought I can look at new stuff. And that company I worked at turned out to be extremely great at encouraging its people to learn new stuff. Their whole modus operandi would be that they hire recent graduates. And because they're recent graduates, they're relatively cheap and all. They are recent graduates, either in the PhDs or like after the master thesis in quantitative subjects. They do always bring some kind of expertise with them. And those are pretty good at learning new things. And we were encouraged to spend a very substantial part of our day just researching the things we need for our current project. And so that was great because I had a lot of interesting projects. At each project, I learned new things and so on. And then after a while, I was set to one slightly longer term project at a customer in Slough. Now, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the geography of the United Kingdom, but if you live in Oxford, then Slough is maybe a place you don't want to commute to. <laughs> and if you live anywhere else, then Slough also isn't a place you want to commute to. Basically, it was a kind of push for me to look at repositioning myself. And I saw this really cool company that was Oxford-based, which mm-hmm. was a big plus for me. And what they did do is, they, that was their tagline, they treated code as data mm-hmm. and like promised me the most interesting data set of them all, the world of code. And they were an analysis company. At the time, their main focus was on analyzing code and automatically detecting certain anti-patterns in code. There's an easy example. Give me all the cases where some value could be null, but I did not check for null before I compare it to some mm-hmm. other value. Something like that. They made up their own query language, CodeQL was the current name for it. Back then, it had a different one. And in that query language, you could write queries for those anti-patterns. But of course, like, well, you know this, a language alone doesn't help you. You need infrastructure around the language. You need people to teach you how to use the language Mm -hmm. and all that. And so among other things, they had a data analysis team who was tasked with finding out interesting things about codes, bugs, anti-patterns, and usage. They had an opening and then that sounded so cool to me. So I sent an application and then I did it to you back, which is, I mean, what usually happens. (laughs) So a month later, I noticed on their website that their head of data science had actually changed. So I thought, oh, well, I mean, new try, right? So I sent out another application and I got the job. Later, it turned out that my application had just gotten lost in the turnover chaos. So they never realized I had applied in the first place. This is the job I still have. SAML was later acquired by GitHub. So the SAML data science team transformed into the machine learning and code team. And from the machine learning or code team, I went to what would become later GitHub Next to develop Copilot. This is where I still It's good that you resent that email a month later. And I think this is typical for AI careers, actually. Yeah. There's many 
coincidences that just happen. And in a sense, like each coincidence has a big influence. Although in another sense, like a normal distribution. So if you have many, many coincidences that add up, then the actual trajectory, it will often be to a similar destination. Even though the individual coincidences are not planned, like the whole effect quite often can work out nicely. If you're looking out for them. Yeah, you have to be open to serendipity. That's the way of saying it, yeah. The work that you've done so far has definitely had a huge impact in the world. You were one of the original team members whose work eventually turned into Copilot. And after being launched into the world, it's the number one AI coding platform in the world and contributing quite a bit to Microsoft's annual revenue. But what are some of the ways that it's evolved in that time? And have you been surprised by any ways that the community is using it? Well, yes. For example, I've seen people use it to like write reports or something, like do things that are not coding. Mm -hmm. That's not something I would have expected. But mainly, I wasn't so much surprised by community usage simply because we were extremely dogfooding on Copilot. Like the second day prototype was written with the first day prototype turned on, right? So I did go through all these things that people do and like the little tricks about writing your comments just right so that they help you write better code and things like that. I did experience them myself. And yeah, there were a couple of things that where I was like, Oh, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> and like writing your reports in VS Code so that you can use Copilot for it. That definitely was one of them. But generally, technology surprised me. Yeah. But once I saw the technology, it was pretty clear that it would be big and transformative. Hmm. And it seems that most of the productivity gains that people gain from using Copilot are largely most significant for early career engineers. Is it something that's a part of your own workflows now? So as I said, we returned on Copilot when it was just the three of us. And I still have uh, Copilot turned on always, except when I'm flying. I do find it more difficult to work without Copilot as I have to turn my brain on for tasks that could before very well go on autopilot. Mm. Like many things I don't have to think about anymore. I then have to think about again if I don't have any internet or, mm. or something like that. And it seems the broader mission of GitHub Next is really just to assist in every aspect of the software development lifecycle, and you've released lots of interesting products there. But as your team brainstorms different ideas, what would you say is the trickiest part of software development to quote unquote solve? Now things get more difficult the larger the system is, like both in raw size, but even more so in complexity and dependency structure and so on. It's relatively easy to help people get started but to take care of keeping a already very mature product running and improving. That's the hardest part for many, many reasons. And it's not just AI who find that difficult, right? I mean, if I go to like Reddit programmer memes, then half of the memes are about people saying, well, it's so fun to start a project and I never finish them. Well, yeah, and possibly that is because maintaining and finishing a project is just genuinely much harder than starting it. In the early part where the canvas is still blank and you can fill it out as you wish, AI can be incredibly useful. And it can also be useful later, but it's harder to make the AI take on board what is there, not invent anything that's not actually there, and make everything fit together. But of course, that's also the most interesting part, right? So, uh, maybe the hardest part, but it's also less rewarding. Looking at the release calendar for what's graduating from work in progress for GitHub Next. Are there any particular projects you're most excited about? 
Well, I'm most excited about my own project, which is using models to make suggestions in a Copilot-like way, like anywhere in your project. So the currently Copilot is like a completion engine um, for what's after your cursor. Let's not use the words of completion terminology. Let's just say Copilot makes you a suggestion of what to type next, where you are. However, like normally people edit code in a highly nonlinear fashion, right? So it depends a bit on the programmer and maybe there's someone who, who writes down a complete class without any backtracking, yeah. but at least the way I do it is I make the skeleton first and then I have to fill in this and then I have to fill in that and then I fill in this and then I need to change that before. And that requires a lot of jumping around. So internally, the project used to be called jump mm-hmm. and then people didn't like that because it suggested that suggestions would be jittery or whatever. So it's not called next editor suggestions. And it's what I'm currently working on. That's super interesting because you want to do a mixture between predicting the next edit and like the next sensible edit. Because what's the most likely next edit that someone will have in their IDE at any point, Mm -hmm. it's always the same. Delete the character you just wrote. That's the most likely single thing. And of course, it's completely useless. And you don't want an AI to help you write out something and then cross it out again. You want it to, in fact, help you by focusing you and continue the thoughts that you currently have in your head without uh, annoying back and forth that is much of coding. It'll be fascinating to see that applied to your daughter's game on getting the monkeys to find bananas. It's quite sad that sports like Copilot are usually, I mean, they are Chrome extensions, but usually are only in IDEs like VS Code and not in anything. That CodeMonkey game, of course, doesn't have a Copilot because it's in a browser, it's some kind of JavaScript. And you could integrate it, of course, but then no one does it. Oh, it sounds like that's just a matter of time. Yeah, probably is, probably is. I'm also not totally sure whether it would be useful to have Copilot turned on in the very first years. It's like when you teach children to calculate, then for the first two years, they don't get a calculator. Right. They pretty soon do get one and possibly should get one even earlier than they already do. But the very beginning, that should be calculator-less. Similarly, I could imagine that in the beginning, you should just do pen and paper or like keyboard and text field. I remember when I first got my first graphing calculator, the most exciting day was when I learned how to program games onto it. And so got to play uh, Super Mario on it while taking the physics test. While you and your team have been developing the future of software development, you've also taken a lot of time to do some very novel research. And earlier this year, you published a really interesting paper on challenges in understanding class distribution in data sets and the concept of data drift which is essentially when real-world scenarios differ from how models were trained. Could you tell us a bit more about what inspired this research and where that was drawn from? First of all, let me just say I'm super gratified that someone reads this. Because, yeah, as you said, it's got nothing to do with the current work I do on on large language models. Mm -hmm. I do believe that in some situations it can actually be quite useful for large language models. Maybe I'll come to there later. But in general, it came from something completely different. So this was based on work I did with my then intern a couple of years ago, Havel Schuchich. And there we had a problem about machine learning on developer productivity. In a nutshell, the whole group had a drive to analyze productivity. And there was a model that we did that could predict, looking at a commit, how hard that commit was or how substantial that commit was. 
you could see a commit and then see it's got two pages long and it touches a lot of very complicated code and it uses very complicated concepts and so on. So this is probably one of the more substantial commits that will take even an experienced developer a long time to come up with. Or you have a commit that just adds a semicolon. It's probably more of a lightweight commit. So the way we measure commit heftiness is in time. Imagine you have like the standard coder who is the incredibly absolute average median developer. How long would that standard coder take for that? Based on our inputs, that is a probability distribution. We predicted this probability comp distribution using Gaussian mixture models. And I should add, when I say we here, this is not my internet me, this is a whole group. The problem is that these distributions, they are actually always very similar to each other. And the reason for that is because you can only tell so much by looking at a single commit. It might just be one single semicolon, but actually possibly this is meaning carrying depending on the language. And this is the bug that the whole team has worked for three days to finally locate. And then someone says, oh my God, this was it. And of course, like entering the code with a keyboard, that took a second, but the whole finding might have been extremely long. Similar, the giant commit I just said before, mm -hmm. well, maybe that is so gigantic because the person only went to Stack Overflow or maybe the tutorial page and just copy-pasted everything and they were done in five minutes. The distribution is similar always. It's not the same. Obviously, the more substantial commit, the distribution is more, I'm not sure whether my image is shifted or not, so maybe my gestures don't make sense. This is more rightwards based mm -hmm. and the others more left, right. but the difference is not high. The median commit work, at least in the data set that we looked at, is about 30 minutes. That's like an open okay. source set on GitHub. So, and some commits look like 35 minutes, some look like 25. Okay. But if you add up many, 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 many different commits, then you'll notice that developers have a pattern. There are those the developers who commit quite quickly, there are those who commit in longer distances. So some developers always have these 25 minute commits. And if you want to like, add up the heftiness of the total development they did over a project, then you always have these well, probably 25 minutes. On the other hand, other developers commit rather rarely. I mean, slightly ashamedly, I say I'm one of those. I commit when I think, oh crap, I didn't commit in three hours, let's quickly do it. So they always have these commits that look like 35 minute commits. And if you add them up, then they're probably underrepresented. Because if you are always 35 minutes commits, then really they're probably an hour commits or two hour commits that just look like 35 minute commits mm. because of the base rate. So long story short, we realized we can't just add up those predictions. We have to, as we like add them up, we have to grow them. Adding up two 35 commits has an expected time, not of 35 plus 35, but of something more. Adding up to 25 minute com looking commits has an added up time of less. So what's the connection to data shift? Well, the connection is here. Basically, you have trained a classifier mm -hmm. in your lab for all developers and all commits. And then you transport it to reality, to a particular developer where the base distribution of commits is different. And this is actually a clear data shift problem. We pulled in this intern specifically so that he and I would solve the whole problem together. And then only when he was there, we realized this is a data shift problem. At the time, we didn't find anything in the literature that would have solved it outright. By now, actually, like someone else had a 
extremely similar idea at roughly the same time, and then they did publish it. So, so if we looked at it now, we would actually find something. What we came up with basically was a way to, to recalibrate in the lab distribution according to the shift that you see using this imperfect classifier ourselves. And there's lots of applications for it. The last project that I started before SAML was acquired by GitHub was just predicting gender distributions mm -hmm. in open source software. And that's interesting because from the outside, from our perspective, we only had one thing, namely the name that the person filled in their box. And names are not always predictive, but you can get some ideas. For example, the US Census Bureau publishes data about how many SAMs are male, like when SAM derives from Samuel, or female when it derives from Samantha or something. If you see like an average SAM on the street in America, and all you know about them is their first name is Sam. Then you can get a, a relatively good probability distribution as to their gender. Okay, but if they contribute to a software project, this is again a data shift from that original distribution. So, and that's because many projects are skewed. It depends on the exact industry, on how they are skewed, but quite often they are skewed. So in fact, so this shifts and you can use the same technique. And when I found that out, I was so happy and then, oh yeah, I already did this. Of course, we changed focus. Oh. So that was never finished, but I liked it. And similarly, LLMs can be used as imperfect and badly miscalibrated classifiers. Like you, you can ask your LLM a question and then look at the log probabilities of an answer that you give it. So you would like mm -hmm. question plus answer would be a prompt. And then you look um, how likely it finds that answer. So that gives you some kind of classification, like that prediction for what the LLM thinks about that answer. And that will be super far away from the real probability, but it should have like monotonously, uh, like a strictly increasing relationship to it. So you can, again, recalibrate that, but you have to be aware that the LLM has a big data shift to your real world problem there. Using those novel techniques you mentioned in the paper to say simplify a lot of the high dimensional data there. What do you think are the impacts of that to the interpretability of the model or more broadly to say doing red team testing on the model before you're about to release it into the wild? We weren't looking at interpretability a lot and I'm not sure it can help you a lot with interpretability. In that sense. With this research focus, is there any other type of research that you're doing? On the side, what's next in that uh, world? Not completely on the side, but we're about to submit an article about transformer attention and how that relates to developer attention. I mean, this is an AI podcast that I'm going to assume you're more than five years old, but you know that the large language models, when they look over a text or something else, let's say a text at each point of the text, they think about this point for a while yeah. and they think by looking at other parts of the text and looking at the intermediate results from there. You have basically like a matrix or actually even a bit more because there's a dynamic component to it of which part of the text like looks back at which other part of the text. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying it looks back because I'm talking about GPT-like transformers which can only look backwards. But the idea there was that developers, they also jump all the way when they read a program, very few read that from top to bottom, just without any pause or dumping. So is there some connection between how developers read through code and jump from one place to the other and how the models look at code and jump from one place to the other? 
And then there's also a spoiler alert there is. And this is super interesting for tool building because it means that you have a relevance relation, hmm. which part of the code is relevance to which other part of the code. And that relevance relation, we can get automatically. So you don't have to scan the developer's eyeballs anymore, which is like what we literally did. Yeah. But now you can just run an LLM over it and look at what the LLM does, how it's processing the data. And so, for example, in Copilot, you're putting parts of the code base into the prompt, right? But which right. parts of the code base? The whole code base is too big. If you put it all in the prompt, well, first of all, there's errors because the context size window is 16,000 characters or so. <laughs> of course, I know GPT-4 Turbo was just released with a larger context window, but even then, if you have too much that is stuff in your prompt, then you're just mm. going to confuse the model. So you want to filter that down. How do you filter that down? I know because I happened to have written the code that filters that down, but that's because I know it's really far from perfect. If I get a better relevance relation than what we're currently doing, then we might give even better suggestions. I can guarantee that once you publish it, at least I will read it. The very last question I have for you, Albert, is that if you were to restart your PhD program today, what would you write your dissertation on? How do you think your view on the world has changed since then? So probably I would still do large infinities in constructive set theory, even knowing that bears basically no relationship to AI. And the reason is the following. I think it, it makes me like a more complete human and... Of course, you can be very laser focused on saying, I want a career in AI, so I'm going to write my uh, thesis at a computer science department on an AI topic. And probably that gives you like a small head start. But still, we're living in the kind of Wild West days of AI, where most people that do it come from it at a different angle, and they always bring with them fascinating experiences. So... I would strongly encourage everyone that like if you're interested in like how solar systems form and then studies physics, and if you're interested in chemistry, then do that. I'm taking those two examples because the girl who sat opposite me, she wrote her thesis on accretion disks and the guy who sat on my side, he did it in chemistry. And as long as it's some kind of numerate kind of data heavy or maths heavy subject, the experiences that you gather will help you as long as you're open to gathering experiences like that. Like you have to have like a kind of sponge-like mentality yeah. and suck every interesting fact in your field and be ready and eager to apply it. Then you can contribute something valuable to AI teams. That's great advice. It seems it comes down to following your passion, just making sure you can quantify it. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Albert, this has been such a fun conversation. We covered a lot of topics. Thank you again for making time to share more about your world. Yeah, of course. I had fun as well. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load make you the hero.